Before we begin, we wanted to mention that this podcast relies on listener support. If you'd like to help us out, there are a few ways you can do that. One is by telling your friends about the podcast or anyone who you think might be interested. Another would be to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or if you're in a place to donate financially and you'd like to do that, we have a Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash backonthegrind. Signing up as a patron gets you access to things like our extended cuts of our episodes, as well as other bonus content. Thank you. Welcome to Back on the Grind, a podcast about life, music, people, and the stories that bring us closer. My name is Will, also known as Folkpunk Dad, and today I talked with my co-host Pepe about showing up for our friends and how to be there for other people, as well as self-care and showing up for ourselves. We also talked about uncomfortable feelings and managing resentment. We also had some technical issues with the audio of this episode, so we do apologize for that. It's a bit rough at times. We hope you still enjoy the episode. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's me, your folk punk dad, also known as Will. I'm here with Pepe today for episode number six of our podcast. We were originally going to do a listener feedback episode, but... Pepe had something come up, and I happened to be exhausted the day we were planning on recording, so we thought we'd shift gears a little bit for this episode, and Pepe, would you like to start things off with just what was going on earlier this week, why you couldn't record, and why we decided to change what we were talking about today? Yeah, you know, I thought originally I would be in the proper headspace to have our recording, um, something had come up. There was an emergency with someone that I care about quite a bit. And that was a day or two before we had to record. And I was just been doing my best to show up for them. But it's tiring and showing up for people, honestly, it, it's, it's not easy. Yeah, absolutely. What do you find difficult about that showing up? I think part of the challenge of showing up for someone is, at least for me, I'm coming at it from this place of there's a million things that can be done for them. So I'm wondering, like, wh- which one of those things do I actually do? And then I often have these thoughts that, like, well, I have to pick the one that's going to make them feel better the quickest, or I have to pick the one that's going to solve the problem that they're facing. And that's often very overwhelming. And then I, I just don't know where to act from there. I can definitely relate to that. It To me, sometimes it feels like either I can think of too many things or I can't think of anything. So when you're in that space, Pepe, how do you end up navigating, deciding how to help the person? Well, this past experience that I had that the reason that we didn't record kind of helped me understand that a lot more. I know in the past I've completely failed at doing that. I mean, there was times where I had people around me who were obviously struggling, people that I care about, and I, I didn't show up. A perfect example would be Pat, who we've talked about quite a bit in this podcast. Uh, in, the, in the early days, you know, when I was 
working with Pat, his using was, I, I never encouraged it. I never directly aided it, but I never approached it. I never talked about it. And I, I saw Pat dwindling. Like there was a point where I was thinking Pat might die. And I'm, I'm not joking. Like I really believe that, but I didn't do anything. I didn't, you know, I was so overwhelmed. But what I could say now, you know, we're all going to face things in life that are sad. We're all going to be scared. We're all going to have difficulties. And what I've realized, especially the other day, was as someone showing up for someone, just to be there in that moment for them is often the most important thing for them so that they're not alone. I don't have to show up with an answer. I don't have to show up with a solution. I don't have to show up with an immediate end to the problem. I have to show up and let them know that I care and just be there with them in that uncomfortable spot because usually they just don't want to be there alone. That's what they're looking for, it seems, not to be alone. For me, I guess I'm trying to step away from like, I got to be a problem solver during this time. That's not what I need to do. And I guess the other part is it's okay for me to be uncomfortable with them. I don't think being uncomfortable is a bad thing. Like I used to think that, right? The thought was, well, they're uncomfortable. They shouldn't be. And that's not true. You know, it's actually a sign that they're responding in a mentally healthy way. If something really traumatic or horrible happened and they're like, oh no, I'm fine. Everything's okay. Like then I would actually think, wait, there's something wrong. Like that's not how you should respond to a, a difficult situation. Like there should be some anxiety and distress. It's a sign of like a, a, a mentally healthy response. Yeah, absolutely. I can definitely relate to being a problem solver in mm -hmm. times where the most helpful thing is to listen and validate the person's experience and feelings. And that's definitely a growing edge for me because I'm often way too quick to jump to a solution. This is especially true in my relationship. And Cecilia is quite good at saying, I just need to be heard right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Can we not get into solutions yet? And um, I've gotten better over the years, but it's still something I'm working on. Yeah, the big thing for me is just simply accepting that it's not wrong that someone is in that state of anxiety or distress or, or sadness. And I, I think that's why I always wanted to solve it because I had this idea that, that that's a wrong place to be. Like you should never be there. And, and life is going to bring us all there at some point in time, you know, and and I, I would like to say you should never be there alone. I think that's more, you know, that, that's the proper thing. It's not that you should never be there, but hopefully you're never there alone too long. I really like that. I totally agree about the response to a distressing situation to be stressed. <laughs> you know, that's totally normal. I feel like I say that every so often of someone who reaches out and says, well, I'm really angry or I'm really upset. And I was like, well, that makes sense. You know, what happened to you is, you know, valid and your anger is valid. Your feelings are valid. And um, I find for myself personally, the most important thing to do when I am 
feeling, uncomfortable feelings, is to let myself feel them, to name them, to figure out what the feelings are in the first place. When I get into trouble is when I ignore them or they're so uncomfortable that I don't want to acknowledge them at all. And, you know, in the past, that looked like numbing out with alcohol and substances before I got sober. But nowadays, it can look like anything. It can look like not just choosing not to talk about them. It could look like playing video games or watching a show with the intention of not thinking about how I Mm -hmm. feel. Um, Not that distraction can't also be helpful at times, but just feeling the feelings is so essential and knowing that it's okay to feel however you're feeling. You can't feel a wrong feeling. And I really like what you said about there's no feeling that you shouldn't feel, but hopefully you don't have to feel it alone. Mm -hmm. I really like that. You mentioned just not wanting to deal with uncomfortable feelings in the past or, you know, in the present too. Like we still struggle with that. One thing that really has been helpful for me is to understand that just because something's uncomfortable doesn't mean it's unmanageable. Like that's been really valuable for me to understand, especially when I'm going to see someone who's experiencing something very uncomfortable. The reason I used to avoid it is because I thought there was no way to to deal with it. But yeah, I, I think it's important to understand that just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean it's unmanageable. Yeah, I really like that too. And I think it's also true that sometimes it might be unmanageable for the person to do it by themselves. Mm-hmm. For me, I find there are things and even emotions that it's not good for me to completely manage by myself. I need other people to help me feel things, to help me talk about things, to even just witness, like we talked about, what I'm going through. Yeah, I think as the person who's showing up for someone, it's really valuable to hear that because we often think, well, what can I do? I don't have a solution. And like you said, you just don't want to deal with it alone. I think that's that's definitely a helpful thing for people to understand because you you can feel like what you're doing is insignificant and it might prevent you from reaching out or showing up for somebody but there's been moments in my life where four minutes with somebody made all the difference for what I was facing I mean in prison that's come up with me I mean I was in a men's prison and stereotypically I guess you know men are not too emotional especially in a men's prison there's reasons you don't want to be emotionally vulnerable in prison so a lot of times the guys there weren't showing that but I had experiences where I was dealing with difficult stuff in there and someone came in and you know it was only for four minutes but they came into my housing unit and and sat down with me for four minutes and it really helped me get through what I was facing you know I encourage people that take the four minutes, like it's it's not too long, and you you really don't know how much you can help somebody. Did you notice a difference in yourself um, before, in, and after prison when it comes to feeling uncomfortable feelings? I certainly did. I guess I'll preface this with saying that from what I saw when I was in there, that 
the difference for me seemed to be not the norm that was going on. I think most people ignored uncomfortable feelings in there. For me, I really made an effort to step into them. Getting out of prison too, like my wife, Lee, will say like she's noticed that change in me for sure. Like it's really helped me show up in the relationship for her that I'm not shutting down or turning away during those uncomfortable, when uncomfortable feelings arise. And I'm not thinking I'm a failure because I don't have a solution too. Like, like if she's in an uncomfortable space and I don't have a solution, I used to think like, well, there's, I'm, I'm failing in the relationship and that's not at all the case. The failure would be failing to show up, ju- just to simply be there. That's great that Lee noticed that change in you. I was wondering if you have certain things you do when showing up for someone. We kind of touched base a little bit on some of this stuff. You know, you had mentioned validating people's feelings, validating Cecilia's feelings. And I think that's one of the first things to do is to resist the urge to downplay the problem that someone is facing. Sometimes we have this urge to kind of help them feel it smaller than it is, that it might be better for them. But then you're not validating what their experience is and what they're they're going through. And that can be very dismantled. It, it be, makes them in a, a very uncomfortable place, you know, and then your, your presence there might not be as valuable as you think it is. Another thing is don't take charge because a lot of times we want to come in, like you said, you, you want to be a problem solver and it doesn't always go well, or usually doesn't seem to go well. And it's the same with me in the past because we, we come in and we want to take charge. A couple of things can go wrong there. One they might not be looking for a solution in that moment. And then the other thing is perhaps they do want a solution, but if we're taking charge, it can kind of like belittle them. The person can feel like they're like a kid or that they're incapable of coming up with their own solutions. And I don't think it's fair to rob them of that ability. One great thing to be is to talk about is, uh, Ask them what they think might be a solution and they can bounce off of you their ideas and you're sort of a soundboard. And often that's just enough. That's what they needed to figure out how to move forward in the problem. They're the one facing the problem. They're more intimately familiar with what they're facing than, than we are. One other thing I would say, and this kind of goes into what we were just talking about, but I think it's important to give emotional support before we give what I call cognitive support. So to show up for the person emotionally, to acknowledge what they're facing emotionally before we jump into solution mode. Or sometimes, you know, people want to reframe the picture, right? Which is not a problem. Like sometimes these horrible things happen. There's something that someone's facing in life and it's not good. And in the moment, they're overwhelmed with that. And there could be a positive aspect to it. But it's not always great to go to that immediately to say, hey, look at the positive, look at the bright side, right? So I think it's better to start off with the emotional support, and then later on come to that cognitive support when they're at a place where they're more able to hear that. You know, the last thing that I can think of is just to be consistent and steady. 
And what I mean with that is when we're showing up for somebody, we want to show up for them, but maybe not be at the same energy or distress level they're at, right? Because we can just amplify their distress. Like, like if we're freaking out as well, it, it often could make things get to a place that, that might even be further along that distress. So if we can kind of be there as a consistent person and with a steadiness to to our approach to help them, you know, move through it. We should have prefaced everything we're saying. I think a good thing to say is, you know, we're speaking broadly here and that people should definitely take into account uh, their friends, their family members, the unique personality of the person that they're engaging, uh, their relationship and the experience that's it's going on. Like that should all be taken into account. You know, this isn't going to be across the board, same for everybody, obviously. So Pepe, a while back, we were meeting with a group and talking about ways to support each other. And one of the things you said is, good friends don't ask. And I was wondering if you could talk a little more about what that means. Absolutely. It's uh, some advice I, I could take on my, my own, actually, a little more. You know, this past situation that I was facing and, and trying to help and show up for somebody for, you know, I had gotten a phone call at three in the morning and, you know, they were struggling with something that had just gone on. And I was on the phone for a little while and then I said, well, do you want me to come over? I asked. And they said, no, no, it's fine. I ended up going over anyways, but I've said this before, good friends don't ask, meaning you know, there's times where if you ask, people might feel like they're being a burden. They might feel like they're pressuring you. They they just might feel like they're going to overwhelm you. And if you ask, they're going to say no. And I think we have to kind of go with our intuition as we talked about, go with the sensation of what feels right. And, and if we know we should be there, if we know we should go show up, just say, hey, I'm coming over. You know, with me the next day, I had to, too. I, I said, hey, I didn't ask. I said, hey, I'm coming over with some egg drop soup for lunch because we're going we're gonna to get together today. And if I had asked, they might have said no again, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, good friends don't ask, meaning sometimes you just need to show up. I'm thankful that you said that a while back because um, someone from that group ended up having a really hard time you know we knew they were having a really hard week and um, or hard few weeks and i thought about asking but decided to just get them a grubhub gift card and they were so appreciative little things like that can really go a long way yeah no absolutely it means so much to people and I would imagine if you had asked, they would probably say, no, don't, don't do that. You know, but the fact that you did, like, I'm sure it touched them and helped them. It feels so wonderful to be acknowledged and to, to have someone else understand that you're, you're struggling. And like, I guess that's what friends do that friends allow you to sort of export some of the burden of struggle onto them. Like that's, that's what a friend does, right? There's this overload or overwhelm of struggle and it's a lot to carry on your own. 
and you know friends allow you to kind of disperse some of that when they show up absolutely we can close on that specific topic and i'll just mention um how in the episode I did with P.G. Burnham, we talked about these four pillars in people's lives. And if one of those pillars breaks down, there's going to be distress that shows up for them. There's going to be discomfort that shows up for them. But I think that's a healthy anxiety that alerts us that something is wrong. So, you know, if we're trying to show up for people, we need to understand that 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 is actually a healthy response and try not to be afraid of that response, right? Try not to think that that response is wrong and just to show up and be with the person to be there and say, this really sucks. I'm sorry it happened. We can go through this together. And even if it's hard for you, if it's uncomfortable for you, do your best to just sit with that discomfort with them. Because chances are they don't want to be alone. So we've talked a good amount about taking care of others. And one of the most important aspects of taking care of others is also taking care of ourselves. And we live in a society that's really turned self-care into an industry. and has often overemphasized self-care in an individualistic way that neglects collective care. One of the important things to recognize is that when we do collective care, we have to include ourselves in that care. So caring for others and caring for ourselves, they're both a part of the same picture. And it's so important to address both. So let's talk a little bit about self-care, especially in situations when we're caring for others. Are there things that you do, Pepe, to take care of yourself? You know, right off the top of my head, the first thing that came to mind is rock steady. Sometimes... I just need some time to sit down and listen to rock steady music. It's a uh, Jamaican music that originally, I guess first came ska music, then rock steady, then reggae, but just the feel of rock steady music. Like it's so comforting to me. It's definitely a form of uh, self care. I mean, it's my favorite kind of music as well, but largely because it makes me feel so good. Definitely something I can turn to in a moment where I need some, some self care. Another thing that I know about you, because a few days ago when we were going to have this episode recording and did not have it, you sent me a text and you said, all right, I'm about to go sit by the edge of the swamp for a while. It's my place for solitude and solace. I will reach out in a couple hours, most likely. So can Mm. you tell us a little bit about that swamp? When we are showing up for others, it can be very exhausting for us as well. Look, part of my self-care was telling you, I can't do the podcast this day. You know, I I kept trying to convince myself all morning, no, I can do this. I can do this with Will. We'll be fine. But I I had to acknowledge that. That part of that self-care was, I can't 
I can't record the podcast. My mind is not in the right place. And a lot of times when my mind is not in the right place, I go to this swamp. You know, I don't live in like a bunch of woods. It's, it's, it's in a city. The street is not too far away. You can hear the cars going by. But I kind of walk off trail and I, I sit at the edge of this swamp. And it's a place I've been going to for years now. I started going there before I, I got arrested. And then after I got arrested and I was dealing with my case, I was there a lot. There was actually a video I made. People wanted an update on what was going on with me while I was fighting my case. And I made a video where I'm, you can't really see the swamp, but I'm walking really close to it. I'm in the woods. I'll probably try and link the video actually in our show notes. I've seen that video actually. And when you were telling me about the swamp, I was wondering, I wonder if that's where he was when he made that video. Yeah, that's, it's, you know, it's almost like a sacred place to me at this point. You know, swamps, I mean, it can be kind of dark in a way, but there's so much death and decay in a swamp. I, you know, it's very fitting though, like, especially like I was facing incarceration. There was lots of parts of my life that were literally like dying. But within a swamp, you'll see, you know, there's all these dead trees. I and mean, that's kind of what separates a swamp from like a pond. A swamp has dead trees in the water. The water comes up to a level that kills all the trees. And then all these bushes and things around it start dying as well. But then that makes room for new growth. And I found that fascinating. Especially once I got out of prison, going back there, I realized that like my prison experience, my sentence, it was a dark time for me. You know, literally parts of me were dying off. And coming back to the swamp and seeing it, you know, while I was in prison, uh, the water had risen up further. And the area I used to sit all the time, there was a log I used to sit, was now unaccessible. It was the water had come up further and killed a lot of things that were growing there. And then I was there today with my wife, Lee. We went this morning. Um, Like I said, it's such a special place. I go there often. We were there for a couple hours this morning, and there was all these little plants coming up. I've never seen them there before. I used to go to this place, like I said, for years, and I had a, a book with me that it's called uh, the Book of Swamp and Bog, and I always kind of I bring it often to when I find a plant or something I want to learn about. But Lee helped me identify this plant, and it's called the Button Bush, and I've seen them before, but I've never seen them when they're young. And it was just like literally like hundreds of them starting to grow because everything else had died. The swamp kind of represents that for me. I think there's a big part of me that has grown so much through my experience these last five plus years. And I'm glad because I've grown into a much better person for sure. You know, not that I was, I'm not saying I was like a horrible person. I don't think I was. Maybe some people might say that. I don't think so. But I've definitely grown to be more capable of showing up for people as we talked about. I've definitely grown to be more caring. I definitely become more empathetic and understanding. And it took a lot of pain and suffering. In the swamp, you kind of see that. Like you see all these things dying, but then you see everything growing beneath it and coming up. And I'm really excited to, in these coming months, to see all these new things kind of rise in the in the swamp. Wow, I love that. 
it's so special to have a place like that that's not only tangibly calming, but also symbolically significant. It's interesting. Like if you almost look at like a swamp, like archetypally, right? They're these places of transformation. That's what they, they represent. And I think it makes sense for me to be so attracted to them. Even before this situation, you know, I, like another place that attracts me is caves. You know, those things kind of go together. I mean, what's in a cave? It's like this dark place you enter. You don't know what's in there. And it's like sometimes we have those places in ourselves. We have these dark places that it's not exactly comfortable going there, but we need to confront them. You know, I was into caves before I was in the swamps and I was exploring caves for years um, and just like small caves around here. I think it was like preparation to help me explore like things within myself that I was avoiding, you know, because who, who wants to look at the dark, scary places in themselves? I didn't want to for years. I looked at the caves instead, but I think it was good training. Well, I love that you were in the dark caves and then came to the transformational swamp. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful trajectory. I'm curious, though, for you with talking about self-care, do you have practices, places, do you have things that you find yourself turning to in those moments? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that's helped me the most over the years has been nightly journaling. I journaled really consistently for, I want to say, something like 10 years. And it was pretty simple journaling. wasn't that interesting. I would just mostly write down what I did that day. And then also a gratitude list. And I think that's something that's really helped keep me grounded. And then I stopped doing it for a while. And I think I really noticed a difference. Not at first. At first, I was like, oh, maybe I don't need to do this every day. And I was fine. But later on, when things did get hard, I didn't have that consistent routine that I was so used to. I didn't have that structure. And some of my other practices, too, that I had let fallen by the wayside, like meditation and prayer and reading spiritual reflections and those sorts of things. I'm getting back into it now and noticing a difference. I'm hoping that I don't fall out of it again for as long as I did. It can be kind of hard with traveling. I'm about to go on tour and I'm saying to myself, okay, I know you'll be on tour, but try to journal as much as you can. So that's something that makes a big difference for me as far as self-care goes. And I find it interesting because you used very similar language. I never would have put these things together to what I was talking about before when we show up for people about being consistent and steady. And you, you said that the consistent journaling helped you. You didn't use the word steady, but consistent journaling helped you seem to be in a more steady place. And I like that we can apply that for others, that we can also apply it to our own self-care the journaling, essentially, it sounds like that was your consistent and steady way to show up for yourself, right? Because who knows, you know, during your day, there can be things going on, anxiety can be high, there, there can be difficult situations, you're facing something, but then when you come to your journal, it's like you're that consistent and steady person kind of engaging with yourself. And it's very similar to what I was 
noticing seemed to help with other people I was showing up for. So thank you for sharing that because I didn't even think about being consistent and steady with myself until you said that. It's so interesting how we often forget that the things we do for others are also mm. things we can do for ourselves. I think about the five love languages. Are you familiar with those? I am. It's actually like a semi-popular book in prison, understandably mm. so. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah. yeah, what were you going to say about it? So if anyone's not familiar with them, the five love languages are quality time, gift giving, words of affirmation, acts of service, and physical touch. And the books are about, you know, these things in relationships and how people give and receive love. And I want to say maybe when I was four years sober or something, like tw around the time of 2016, I thought, you know, maybe I should try doing some of these things for myself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, at the time, I was really trying to foster a stronger relationship with myself. I was working on things like self-love and self-care. Uh, started flossing every day, which I'd never done before, you know, things like that. And that was an act of service to myself, mm -hmm. flossing, you know, uh, doing the dishes for myself, an act of service to myself. There are other things, like I, I remember a day... When I was getting out of work, uh, I was a high school theater teacher, and I really didn't feel good about what the work I'd done that day and how I'd managed a certain class. And I thought about reaching out to someone first, but then I thought, well, how can I show up for myself right now? And so I literally texted my own phone number <laughs> positive things about myself. You know, you're an awesome teacher. You're doing a great job. And received the text immediately and read it. And it really did make me feel better. And then I did reach out to someone else after that. But I already had that support from myself too. So it was double the support at that point. I, yeah, I think people forget that we can show love to ourselves in actionable ways. You know, self-love is not the same as self-esteem. Because love is so actionable. And we often forget that. You can hate yourself and still show yourself love. Mm -hmm. I like that. It's interesting because you asked me about like emotions and if I had responded differently since I'd been to prison. And hearing you talk, I'm realizing I think one of the areas where I've changed with that is with self-love. I guess it's not a term I would have used in in the past or even until now. I wouldn't have thought I was that's what was going on, but since I've been out of prison, I've definitely been more aware of how I am feeling and responding to it. So the act of saying, well, I'm not recording the podcast this day was an act of self-love. I wouldn't have thought that until this moment. Going to the swamp, all those things are acts of self-love. Um, it's interesting because I never would have put it that way. And certainly like before I went to prison, I wouldn't have thought that way either. It's strange because I wonder why it's easier for me to think of other people in that way, but not for myself. Like I would struggle, at least in the past, I'm better at it now, but like it seems more difficult to think about caring for myself. Like I'm and I'm just sitting here thinking about it. I'm like, man, I kind of like shove myself aside sometimes and like, if I was doing it to someone else, like I would feel horrible. 
You know, and it's kind of weird that I do that to myself as much as I do. You know, I'm glad it's something though that I'm working on and, you know, I'm glad it's something that that has changed, especially since I've been released. You know, and I'm glad that we're having this conversation because it's giving me a new language to talk about it and look at it in a different way that I, I didn't even acknowledge. So thank you. Yeah, totally. At least what I have found is when I practice self-love with actions, but also with understanding compassion for myself and my faults and just everything, when I can love and accept myself exactly the way I am, shortcomings and strengths and everything in between, it's easier for me to do that for others. There's a phrase, you spot it, you got it. The gist is if someone is really annoying you, maybe they have a trait or something that's really getting on your nerves, there's a good chance that you might have that trait Mm. too. And that's why it's annoying you so much. And what I found for me is when I chose to accept those parts about me and have compassion on those parts about me, I found those traits a lot less annoying in other people Mm -hmm. because instead of resenting it, I would think, oh, this person's just like me (laughs) and I'm just going to love and accept that person as they are. Yeah, I noticed that in prison. I, I mean, especially when I, the end of my bid, I was living in like a dorm area. We weren't in separate housing spaces. So there's just a hundred guys in a room and everybody's annoying stuff is in your face. Like you, you know, there's just rows of bunk beds and you're all right next to each other. There's no avoiding like you, you see everyone's annoying stuff and they see all your annoying stuff and there's no avoiding it. Uh, I came to a very similar place that like in prison like for me I had to accept it because there's you can't escape so I got to this place like you where I was like thinking well I must be doing 10 other annoying things as well that I'm not aware of but I'm annoying them and you know and then it allows you to have that compassion and the thing actually becomes less annoying yeah so you had mentioned compassion this is kind of off topic, perhaps, and we can even edit this out. And this is a little bit of a difficult conversation, but it's something I've been considering. When you have compassion for someone who's also done something that's harmful, how do we approach that? Right? Because you can be aware that someone is struggling and they can do something that's not okay. And you can kind of see perhaps it came from the struggles that they faced in their own life that were not, that that could have been really terrible, right? But the things that they, they've done are not acceptable. So how do you, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a strange place to be very upset with somebody and have compassion for them at the same time. I totally hear that. And... It's interesting because it can sound like those things might be in conflict. And there's, of course, tension there. But in some ways, it goes hand in hand, too. According to Brene Brown and research that she either did or uh, referenced, 
the most compassionate people also have the best boundaries. And I think the study they did was with monks and nuns or something like that. And so I think especially when someone has done something that may be unacceptable or hurtful or whatever it is, having compassion for them also looks like having proper boundaries, healthy boundaries. And those boundaries actually make it easier to have compassion. Because if you don't have the boundaries, then you might fall into a sort of enmeshment where there's not really compassion. There's just, I don't even know the word for it, but almost like, I guess enmeshment is the word, where there's not enough separation for there to be compassion. And I think when those boundaries aren't there, there's more likely to be resentment and those sorts of things. But if you have good boundaries, not rigid boundaries, but also not being totally boundaryless, when you have boundaries that are like a dotted line instead of a solid line or no line, when you have those sorts of boundaries, it makes room for compassion and helps it to grow. Let's say hypothetically you have a family member that is an especially difficult person for whatever reason. If you have good boundaries with that person, whether they're talking boundaries or location boundaries or time boundaries, whatever they are, it's going to be easier to have compassion for that person and have a relationship with that person that's healthy for both of you. But if those aren't there, it gets messier. Mm. Yeah, I agree that it gets messier. You used the word resentment. That really struck me because when resentment builds up, it makes it more likely for you to behave in bad ways as well. And and Lee and I had been talking about this recently, and a lot of people might be uncomfortable with this idea. I mean, I don't think there's any disputing this. It's a, a reality that when someone does something horrible, they're a human being doing something horrible. It's a human act. And we're all human, right? Which means, and it, but we're capable of human acts. You know, I'm not saying that I have desire urges to do horrible things, but I could acknowledge that when a human does a horrible thing, it's a human act and I'm a human, I am also capable of being in that place doing that that horrible thing. And that's a really hard thing to say because no one wants to admit that they can be that horrible of a person. But I think the value in exploring that, and it's hard, like I said, to think I can hurt people, I can do things that I am really upset about when I see them happen. To acknowledge that I am capable as a human behaving that way, it really allows me to explore, for me personally, to explore the ways and things I should do to make sure I never end up there. To tie it back to resentment, you know, when you have resentment, it kind of brings you back to that place. If you let resentment fester and build up over time, it's going to get unleashed in one way or another. I don't know. I think it's really difficult. Like I said, a lot of the things we're talking about today 
are really difficult to sit with as a person, right? Like when someone you care about is in a very difficult place and they're struggling, it's hard to sit next to them and to see them doing that, right? When you yourself are overwhelmed and struggling with something or you yourself are hurting, sometimes it's hard to acknowledge that, right? Just to to go sit at the swamp and acknowledge like, I'm in a rough place right now, right? It's hard to sit there. And then same with this, that talking about people doing things that, you know, I know I'm repeating myself, but it's a human act and we're all human and we're capable of human acts. To really sit with that, it's scary, but I think it's helpful because it can help guide us on a path to make sure we stay away from ending up in a place like that as much as possible. Yeah, I, I totally see that. Yeah, speaking of resentment in that context, what are ways that people can prevent resentment? Mm, it's such a deep question. We could probably do a whole episode on that. And maybe we will. I you know, I would like to think about this more, but I can tell you the first thing that popped in my head, it's not an answer, but maybe it's worthy of an episode. In my case, when I got arrested, people had snitched on me and led me to prison because they told them, you know, the cops didn't find me on their own. They found me through people snitching. And I can say I probably have the least resentment out of anyone in my case that, um, you know, I don't, I don't think Lee would mind me saying it's like she had a lot of resentment for those people. Understandably, she was losing the most important man in her life to prison because people snitched and, and sure I did break the law. That was also part of why, but, but I got to a point where I really didn't have resentment for those people. I feel bad for them. I really do. I think they got it worse than me. Some of them didn't even go to prison because of the, the snitching, but I know the relationships started to crumble when their partners found out. Me and Lee have talked about this. Like if I couldn't, betray my best friends if I can lie you know I, I told my friends I would never turn my back on them in a situation like this and I didn't when the time came but if I betrayed them I don't think Lee would be able to trust me like you know she would see me as a man who isn't trustworthy and for the guys that snitched in my case like I know some of them relationships were falling apart I know they got to live with the fact that they sent people to prison Prison sucks. I didn't like being there, but it's done with. And sure, it's a memory in my life, but I'm not walking around with the weight of knowing like my actions put another father in prison away from his family. I don't know. I feel bad for them to have to hold all that more than I do resentment. I really think that they got a more difficult life ahead of them than I do. There's a burden on them that I know they can't let down. Like I know that. It's just one of the kids in my case, he was uh, friends with my co-defendant who got locked up with me since fifth grade. And then he just told on him. And I, I don't know how you can do something like that. But anyways, I'm getting carried away. My point is I don't hold resentment for those people. And perhaps we can do a whole episode on like snitching and resentment and these types of things and how they intertwine. I think there's a lot to talk about there. I think it's a valid question. But it's such a big question that I don't have an answer off the top of my head right now. Yeah. Do you do you have any thoughts on on avoiding or preventing a buildup of resentment in your life? I have two thoughts. 
of things that help me not let resentment build. One of them is to talk about things as they come up. Mm-hmm. Um, if I notice something is bothering me or start, starting to bother me, I talk about it, I write about it, or at least I try to. I don't always. Uh, this past year, there were a few times where I did let resentment build up and it came out sideways. Um, so, you know, it was during those times where I wasn't journaling, you know, wasn't reflecting. So I think staying vigilant in that sense as far as how I'm feeling is really helpful. Going back to feelings, knowing how I'm feeling. Am I starting to feel resentment? Am I feeling annoyed or frustrated at this person? And if so, letting that anger out in a healthy way and not letting it bottle up. The other way to prevent resentment is this quote. I'm not sure where it's from. It's expectations are premeditated resentments. Mm. And I think that by having realistic expectations or a healthy amount of no expectation, then there's less likelihood of resentments coming up. I think this is a good place to end. You know, we, we talked about quite a bit, talked about showing up for your friends to just be there with them. Even if it's uncomfortable, that doesn't mean it's unmanageable. We talked about showing up for yourself, approaching it from a perspective of self-love. And then we talked about having compassion, not letting resentment build up. And then the other thing that we talked about that people maybe can keep in mind is don't snitch on your friends. (laughs) Well summarized. Thanks for this conversation, Pepe. Absolutely. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed it. Be on the lookout for our next episode coming out July 1st. Pepe is going to be interviewing John from Rent Strike. And if you'd like to support our podcast, feel free to sign up for our Patreon or leave us a review. We appreciate you.